and welcome to the Mystery Barn Podcast. I'm Heather, and thank you for joining me. I want to give a shout out to my new listeners from Samsung Podcast. Welcome. You can also listen and follow this podcast on iHeartRadio, Audible, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcast. You can find me on YouTube at the Mystery Barn Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mystery Barn Pod or reach out to me at mysterybarnpodcast at gmail.com. Due to the nature of true crime, this may not be suitable for listeners under the age of 13. Please use your discretion. With that out of the way, let's get started. For this case, we are traveling to Shelby, North Carolina to meet the Degree family. Harold and Iquilla Degree were married on Valentine's Day in 1988. A year later, they would welcome a son, O'Brien. Soon after that, on August 5, 1990, they would welcome another child, this time a girl whom they named Aisha Jaquilla. The Degrees raised both their children in a residential subdivision in a house on Oak Crest Drive. They lived in the midst of a rural area that was on the western edge of the downtown Charlotte, North Carolina area. Both parents worked at jobs nearby, and oftentimes the kids would let themselves in after school. They were aware of social dangers and influences, and as a result, kept the children's exposure to outside influences to a minimum. The family didn't own a computer as another way of keeping the kids safe from possible danger. They kept their lives filled with a balance of family, church, and school. But something would happen in February of 2000 that would change everything. Aisha was a sweet, shy fourth grader at Falston Elementary School. She loved math and science, and it wasn't surprising that she made Student of the Week multiple times. She was a cautious girl, and from the outside, seemed content to live within the boundaries her parents had put in place. In an interview, her mom would recall how she was also scared to death of dogs. So going into that second week of February, the schools were closed that Friday, February 11th, and the kids had a three-day weekend to look forward to. Both parents still had to work that day, so O'Brien and Aisha would spend the day with an aunt who lived in the same neighborhood. They did still have basketball practices at their school that they attended on Friday. The following day, Aisha's team, where Aisha was a star point guard, would lose their first game of the season, with Aisha falling out minutes before the end. The loss caused Aisha to become quite upset, even to the point of crying along with her teammates. She did seem to get over it and went on to watch her brother play in his game. Later that night, she would attend a slumber party of a cousin where they stayed up late watching TV. On Sunday, February 13, 2000, the parents and son would come early to pick up Aisha from her cousins before attending church service. After church, they visited another cousin, and Aisha got a chance to see her grandma, who had some gifts for her for the coming Valentine's Day holiday. When they returned home, feeling a little tired, Aisha laid down to take a nap for a bit, but was awoken by a thunderstorm. She then joined her family to watch some TV for the night. A short time later, the power would go out as a result of a motorist crashing into a nearby utility pole. As the power was out, the nighttime routine was altered slightly, and instead of the kids doing the usual bath stuff, they were sent off to bed. Sometime later, Harold would head out to pick up some last-minute Valentine's Day and anniversary stuff, as the following day would mark his and Iquilla's wedding anniversary. He wasn't gone long and fell asleep on the couch before being awoken once the power came back on. When the power came on around 12.30 a.m., he checked the kids and found them both to be sleeping. Having been roused from sleep to attend to things with the return of the power, Harold found himself awake and watched TV for a couple of hours before retiring to bed himself for the night. 
Before that, around 2.30 a.m., he checked the kids again on his way to bed. Again, they were both asleep in their bed. So early the next morning, around 5.45 a.m., Mom Iquila rises to start preparing for the day. Since the power was off last night, she readies the bath for the kids and goes to wake them around 6.30 a.m. She goes into the room and finds O'Brien sleeping, and when she looks to Aisha's bed, she finds it's unmade and empty. Not immediately concerned, she figures that Aisha got up early and was already downstairs. But when she went downstairs, she was nowhere in sight. She also noticed that her backpack and house key were gone. It was then that the worry started to trickle in. Thinking that maybe she went across the street to the grandmother's house, calls were quickly made to try to locate just where she was. Calls that would only serve to heighten their already growing concern. But what the family does not know yet is that sometime between 2.30 and 6.30 a.m., shy little nine-year-old Asia has slipped out of the house in the early morning hours with her backpack packed with some clothes and other personal items and started walking on Highway 18. Later, it would become known that sometime during the early morning hours, her brother would hear her stirring and moving around. Thinking that she was just tossing and turning, he didn't think anything of it. When he heard her get up, he logically thought she was going to the bathroom. He would fall back asleep. So shortly after 6.30 a.m., calls would be made to the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office. Before 7 a.m., police would already be at Asia's home and canvassing the neighborhood for any sign of little Asia. Over the next several hours, search and rescue, dozens of volunteers, and dogs would be brought in. Additional departments and law enforcement officers would join the search. The police would uncover no sign of forced entry or break-in. There was no evidence whatsoever in the home of any foul play. Nothing seemed to be disturbed or out of place, except for that backpack and house key missing. When an inventory of things missing was completed, police believed that she was possibly wearing a white t-shirt, white jeans, and Nike shoes. She could have also had a white nightgown on. Her coat and hat were untouched. Clothes were missing, as well as the candy she had received after the basketball game. All this pointing to signs that Asia had packed her bag prior to disappearing. But why? That's one of the many questions here. Why would a nine-year-old girl just decide to pack some things and leave the house in the early morning hours? As word started to spread about the missing girl, and media started reporting it, a trucker was eating lunch when he recognized the face of the missing girl on TV. He contacted the police. He told them that he saw her walking in the rain along Highway 18 at 3.30 in the morning. The location was about a mile south of Asia's home. He recalls, and I quote, I seen a little girl walking down the road with her book bag. She had on a little dress and white tennis shoes, and her hair was in pigtails. I went back, but she never did look up at me. She looked like she knew where she was going. She was walking at a pretty good pace. End of quote. What initially prompted him to turn around is that he realized that it was a child. He said he circled around three times, but the girl took off and ran into the woods. Another witness would come forward and say that around 4.15 a.m., they recall seeing a small person walking down the road. They assumed it was a woman, but confirmed it was a small figure wearing light-colored clothing. This location was about 1.3 miles from her home, just before the intersection of Highway 18 and 180. They sent a message out over the CB radio to warn truckers to be on the lookout, fearing that she could be accidentally ran over and then continued on their journey. The police found all of these witness statements to be credible and set up a five-mile radius of the area. They performed air searches and driver checkpoints. Bloodhounds tried to track her scent, but were unable to come up with much due to the rain that had fallen, effectively removing her scent. Left with no solid leads, 
Police interview the parents, and they are quickly ruled out as suspects. They have been nothing but cooperative with the police and allowed the home to be searched, and they both passed polygraph tests. The following day, on February 15th, a homeowner that lived about a mile south of the degree home had an old outbuilding on their property that stood about 300 feet from the road. The building didn't have a door, and it was used for storage. When they checked inside of the shed, they found some items that weren't placed there by them. What they found was a marker, a 1996 Atlanta Olympics pencil, a yellow hair bow, some candy wrappers, and a small photo of a little girl. The family would identify the items as belonging to Asia, except for the photo of the little girl. No one knew who that was. After this, no further evidence would be found, and on February 20th, the official search was suspended. Investigators believe that it appears that Asia did leave on her own accord, although she didn't fit the pattern of a typical runaway. She was a happy girl who was kind, shy, and a people pleaser. She came from a solid family home with a family that was close and intact. She was very close with her brother, and she had many extended family members all living close by. It just didn't make any sense, and everyone was just left with a whole lot of questions and very little in the way of answers. And then, just like that, nothing. Until over a year later, in August of 2001, when a construction crew working over 20 miles away in a different county made a startling discovery. While digging, they unearthed something that had been buried, Asia's backpack. It was found double-wrapped in trash bags. The interior contents would be identified as belonging to Asia. Well, almost. 99% of the items were Asia's, but it also contained a couple of items that were not hers. A Dr. Seuss book called McElligot's Pool that was taken out from her school library and a New Kids on the Block concert t-shirt. I did find out that at the time of this being found, the two items that were found in the bag that were not hers was not information that was released to the public. In fact, that information, the book and the t-shirt, was not released to the public until 2018. In the area, they would locate a pair of men's khaki pants and some bones that were later identified as that of an animal. They couldn't find any connection with the pants. While some of the circumstantial evidence does in fact indicate that she was running away, there are still so many things that don't make sense with that theory. With the finding of the backpack, however, investigators are starting to suspect that nine-year-old Asia very likely met with foul play after leaving her home. But many years would go by with nothing, not a word, not a trace, and no new evidence. In February of 2015, the FBI announces that they are taking another look into the case and offers up a $25,000 reward for information that leads to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Asia's disappearance. This is in addition to the $20,000 reward posted up by the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office for a total of $45,000. In 2016, investigators released pictures of two vehicles that Asia may have been seen getting into. The vehicles in question were a dark green 1970s Lincoln Continental Mark IV or a dark green Ford Thunderbird with visible rust around the wheel area. I couldn't find any further information on this as to where the leads came from or how they panned out. As I stated earlier, in 2018, police released information about the two items found with Asia's backpack that were not identified to be hers, the Dr. Seuss book and the New Kids on the Block t-shirt. Over the years, there would be other leads that lead investigators down path of people that were already in jail for other crimes against children, a lot of false confessions and lots of dead ends. But they check every lead and work tirelessly 
and their search to find Asia and find the answers to what happened that day. This is still a very personal and active case for the police and nowhere near a cold case. But one thing is for certain, Asia's family has never given up hope that she is still alive. They hold walks in her honor and reach out to the public, making sure to keep her name in the spotlight. A missing sign marks a spot on the highway where she was last seen, and they pray. Asia would be turning 32 this year, but to the degree family, she is still that nine-year-old sweet, shy girl, and she is missed and loved dearly. At the time of her disappearance, Asia was nine years old. She was born on August 5, 1990. She is African-American with black hair and brown eyes. When she went missing, she was four foot six and weighed 60 pounds. She is believed to have been wearing a white nightshirt, jeans, and white tennis shoes. She went missing in the early morning hours on February 14, 2000. If you have any information about Asia Degree, please reach out to the FBI Charlotte office at 704-672-6100. Again, that number is 704-672-6100. Or the Cleveland County Sheriff's Office at 704-484-4822. Again, 704-484-4822. That was a tough one. Such a sweet young girl. It's hard not to get emotional about this. One of my main motivations behind this podcast is to spread awareness, to keep the names of the missing and the victims of a crime out in the spotlight, hoping that it triggers a memory, anything that can help. Researching and reading about some of the many crimes can definitely make you feel that true evil does in fact exist. I try my best to cipher through information to get as accurate a reporting of facts as I can find. So please reach out if I have any discrepancies that need to be addressed. There's no harm intended. I thank you for joining me today on the Mystery Barn Podcast as we talk about the disappearance of nine-year-old Asia Degree from Shelby, North Carolina. I'm your host, Heather, and if you have any comments or just want to reach out with any theories or thoughts you may have, you can contact me at mysterybarnpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at mysterybarnpod. I've included links to the sources used in this podcast in the show notes. The intro and outro music was created for this podcast by Chamika. You can find them on Instagram at Chamika Music. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.